Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Wake Up With Comic Pop. It's been a while. Sorry about that. It's been weird. I was having some voice issues where if I talked too long, my throat would hurt and my voice would go and crack. And I went to the doctor and he was no help whatsoever. But I still looked into it. And for the most part, it seems like it has pretty much resolved itself. But I am taking it easy and trying not to exacerbate what seems to be a new problem. But one of the unfortunate side effects was that I had to stop doing this show for a little while because I really needed to save my voice for the biggest stuff we were making. But we're back, and I hope your commute is going smoothly and without incident. So let's get into some of the news. On the 12th, Variety posted an article which featured Matt Reeves talking about his interactions with James Gunn and Peter Safran about the 10-year plan for the DC Cinematic Universe and how it does or does not involve his Batman plans. Now, I also recently read an article in which Matt Reeves is talking about how he's starting to write the sequel, and I'm like, you have had over a year to have the prosperity of this movie guide you towards a sequel. How could you possibly be thinking about a sequel now as opposed to six months to a year ago? And the reason is simple. It's because he probably did have a plan. He probably has a script, but you don't want to say that out loud because if you do, you are essentially telegraphing to a studio whose character they own and you'd like to use that you are really excited to work on it and you do not even want to negotiate for a higher pay raise. Makes sense to me. You want to use Batman, you want to tell a cool Batman sequel, but you also want to be paid top dollar. Paid what you're worth, I get it. So you got to play this whole theater. But apropos of the discussion with Gunn, which sounds, from the looks of it, like they want to have the Batverse with Pattinson be its own thing and have James Gunn's Batman be a separate thing. They haven't talked about who Batman is or all that stuff, but Matt Reeves does say, quote, the Batverse thing, as James has said and as Peter has said, is kind of its own thing they're letting us do. So at first glance, it sounds like the Robert Pattinson movies are going to be in their own universe, and they're not going to use Robert Pattinson as the interconnected DC Cinematic Universe Batman. That apparently Matt Reeves has designs, plans, dreams about what's going to happen in his Batman universe, and quote, that's part of what I'm going to be talking to them about in the next few weeks. They also go on to liken it to air traffic control, like they don't want to slam into each other, so they have to coordinate, which sounds to me like they're two different universes. But this could be just as theatrical as him saying he's just now starting to work on a screenplay. Maybe Matt Reeves wants to play in the DC Cinematic Universe. Maybe Matt Reeves wants his Batman to be the main Batman in this universe. And he knows he's got to play the game and say, no, 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 no. I'm working on my thing because everybody is excited about this being its own creatively driven thing. And if I start leaking ideas, it will also give away what James Gunn's plans are. Frustratingly, I guess the point of this story is we don't know what's going to happen, but we do know at the very least we're going to get more Matt Reeves, Robert Pattinson, Batman movies. I'm okay with that because I really enjoyed The Batman, and I would love to see more The Batman. Hell, I would like to see The Batman meet the Superman, and the Wonder Woman, and the Flash, and all the other characters that may or may not be rebooted in the next 10 years. But I'll take what I can get at this point. It's been a hot minute since the last episode of this show, so going back to December 22nd of last year, Marvel posted an article about the Zeb Wells Amazing Spider-Man series and us leading into the actual question that people have on their minds, or at least did about 20 issues ago or so. What did Peter Parker do? 
And why are we in this current status quo for Spider-Man now? And I gotta admit, I'm not the least bit interested. I will fully admit that when this series was announced and they released that first teaser for what did Peter Parker do, I was on board. I wanted to know. I was curious. And then the subsequent series came out. Now, of course, this is an article published by Marvel.com, so it's little more than a promotional piece, but it does give you a little bit of information. For one, it gives you some fun-looking covers that are drawn by John Romita Jr. that are admittedly pretty good. Honestly, they're actually really good. I like them a lot. I think they're really well executed. They're John Romita Jr., so they're going to be divisive, to say the least. But this skull character with the headdress is looking pretty fun. The other thing we know is that starting in issue 21 we are finally going to get the answers to some of our questions, or at least the questions that really are Zeb Wells' questions, because he's the one who posed them in the first place. I don't know if anybody's asking these questions anymore. And I think that has a lot to do with where we are, because at the end of the day, regardless of how we answer the question of what did Peter Parker do, we know that whatever he did led us down the path of where we've been for the last, at the time of this recording, 17 issues. And I'm not terribly thrilled with where we are. And I don't think that the highs are worth the lows. And so I am not interested in finding out what Peter Parker did, especially if it's going to go back in time and showcase a time that I'd rather be in. I think if you have a really strong story, start with that and see where it takes you. And it's funny, this actually might not be Zeb Wells' fault. This could honestly be the result of editorial involvement, where they said, you know what, yes, we could start immediately off the heels of the Beyond story, and then just go forward. But if you have an idea about where it all ends up, why don't you start there, and then we could open the story with a big teaser, and then just lead you down that path for the next year or so. You know, kick the can down the road and just generate enthusiasm. I mean, that sounds like an idea that editorial would come up with to me. But regardless of who came up with the idea and how they decided to plot this out, it reminds me of having conversations with other comic book creators like Scott Snyder who are so excited to tell you that they had the idea for the ending long before we got there. That they were like, I knew exactly how this story was going to end when I started it, and we never deviated from that course. And no shade to Scott, that just reminded me that he's one of those people who likes to plot out ideas. But I think that comics are one of the few mediums where you don't have to do that. Where you can go on the journey of the story almost month to month. And if the story's going in one direction, and you think that it's more exciting to go left or right, or you need to follow that story's natural progression and you have the luxury of something like Amazing Spider-Man that is not going to get canceled after six issues, then why don't you do it? Why make yourself beholden to an idea you had a year ago? That was a whole year ago. You're a whole new person now. You have new information. You have new experiences. This story may have taken you in directions you never thought possible and may justify a completely different ending. That's, of course, all to say that we're finally getting this answer, and I think the result of being beholden to this concept executing it the way they did, has resulted in further fatigue and apathy from the readers. Certainly this reader. I've long since given up the ghost about Peter Parker and Mary Jane's marriage. I know, it's tragic, but we had an entire series where we watched them be married and have a kid. And I remember saying back when that book was coming out, if this outsells Amazing Spider-Man, they will change the status quo. 
if Renew Your Vows had more readers than Amazing Spider-Man, they would heel turn very quickly because money talks. But now we're here. And I think Marvel now has a pretty good idea about what to do about this Peter-Mary Jane relationship. They use it as a marketing tool. Sales data would have them believe that, by and large, the audience does not want the marriage back. But they also know that there is a significant portion of that audience that will organize and rush to social media to promote that series if they think it'll result in some semblance of the marriage being returned. I mean, if I were in charge of marketing Spider-Man comics, I'd have that on the books because I could set my watch to it. You know, talking about beloved fan-favorite comic book characters and how they are so strong and mean so much to us, but also are very much at the whim of editorial and the writers that are telling their stories, it reminds me of a conversation I had with writer Dan Abnett, who I know you know from his Guardians of the Galaxy run, his run on Aquaman, Nova, uh, Titans. He's done it all, and he had this really great insight into what it was like to work back when they had these writers' retreats at DC. Well, take a listen. It was actually very, very funny, and I won't go into the details, but but uh, two years ago, I've been working with DC a lot. Something happened at DC where one book was doing something uh, thinking that everybody knew what they were doing and nobody <laughs> did. And at, a, at an editorial re- retreat with everyone present, all the writers, we were all getting up and standing up in turn to say what we were doing in our book. And, and, and uh, uh, I won't mention his name, but it was Tom King, stood up and said, I'm doing this. <laughs> and, and I'm not sure how much swearing I'm allowed to do on this book. Oh, yeah, no, you're fine. There was like, you could almost see the shockwaves going out across the room as editors going, you're doing what? And me and the writers of several other books that had characters in common. Yes. Went, yeah. no, what? Uh, and it was just, but, but once we realized it was genuinely a mistake, oh, not, you know, it was an oversight. We hadn't been told. He thought we'd been told. He thought it was all, we just sat at the bar and we worked out how to do it. And actually it meant that all the things I was doing in my book, um, I, I literally couldn't do. So I decided <laughs> I would do them anyway, but I would turn them on the head. I literally inverted the entire story to, to, for it being about, rather than it hanging on a particular character, it was like, what happens if this character isn't here? It's still the same story, but yeah. it was like, oh my God, this character isn't around and he should be really. And he should have been really, because it was a story about him, but I'd removed him. And actually it worked, oddly, it sort of worked better. So you've, you've adapted, you find ways of solving your problems and it can be very funny. Or, or they let you get on with this stuff. I mean. Um, when I uh, when I was working on Guardians of the Galaxy, yep. uh, Marvel, um, a staggeringly long time ago that was as well. But uh, but I simply the characters I wanted to use were the ones that I remembered reading as a kid in the UK. There was a lot of reprint stuff over here, and so it was characters like Star Lord and, and Rocket Raccoon, who I liked, and I knew that they had never really been massively successful. They were sort of the forgotten toys down the back of the toy box, yep. they, you know, um, and. And I, what I tr- wanted to do was to, to, to sort of find the potential in them, mainly by combining them, like putting Rocket and Groot together and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, 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 and for, a, for, a, for a brief sort of, I don't know, six months to a year on that book, it was, it was just wonderful because Marvel honestly didn't care what I did because as far as they were concerned, these toys were already broken. Yes. <laughs> I think there was an enormous amount of freedom in, in doing storylines that if it, I've been writing, you know, a... a a major character like, I don't know, Spider-Man or Iron Man or something like that, I simply wouldn't have done because you, you can't do that with something that's, that's established. It's too high profile. Because there were no, sort of in that little corner of the universe, there were no rules. I sort of made my own. And, and Joe Casada 
was not a fan of um, cosmic stories. He didn't understand why people like cosmic stories. So he would constantly say, I just don't get it, but carry on doing it. You just keep doing it, but I don't get it. And, 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 and I think that's one of the reasons the, the, you know, to the extent that it worked, it worked simply because, because there was an opportunity to, to kind of play around and nobody, you know, if I, if I suddenly went, oh, I've broken this one, nobody was going to go, what have you done? You've just destroyed a multi-million pound franchise. Right. It's like, I'll oh, just put it back in the toy box. No one will notice. So, so yeah, you can, you can, I think, I think, you know, you, being part of a big universe uh, is great because there is an enormous amount of, 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 story resonance that you can get out of that. The fact that you can reflect events in other books or other books can re reflect the events in your book. Um, and the trick is, I suppose, is in a sneaky way, is also to, to build your own bubble, where if you need to, you can ignore the outside and you can stick to your story and, and, and you know, just, just concentrate on that. So it's, it, there's, there's all sorts of cunning little techniques behind the scenes that the reader's not necessarily aware of, where you kind of like, I'm going to really pay attention to that because that's important, but I'm going to just ignore that that's happening because I don't need to know that. Right, right. Or they're subconsciously aware of it. Like, it, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Playing to your Guardians and Annihilation event, that was a whole thing that could upturn the galaxy, yet at that tumultuous time in the Marvel Universe, you know, you had Civil War, and yet you were able yeah. to do so much with yeah, yeah. so much that, again, didn't have any effect on what clearly the, 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 the bigwigs over there were more focused on. Yeah, and that, and that's right because I mean, in the Marvel universe, Earth is the important place because that's exactly. that actually is the you know prime real estate where all the characters are. That's the bit that really matters. Yeah, but space doesn't matter because it's quite hard to, to identify with you know some mumble jumble planet out in the middle of nowhere. You know, sort of all this kind of stuff. You so so you we could play around with all sorts of different things and 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 do the sort of Titanic scale things that you couldn't do on Earth without breaking Earth. Right. Uh, which which was very very useful and and to me um, annihilation which Keith Giffen masterminded the first one of those that was great because we could we could work on that kind of Star Wars in scale which was fantastic but yeah. to me the the moment I realised that, that that something was happening that um, that made a big difference is having done the, the the Nova miniseries for the first annihilation which was beautifully drawn and it was a good story and people really liked it and yeah. blah 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 thing was a success but then they <laughs> said we're gonna we want to launch a Nova ongoing and in the first couple of issues I, I had him return to earth and interact with the earth heroes yes and that was the turn to me that was the turning point that made everybody go wait a minute this is really really cool because he as a character had changed yeah. and he had be he basically been aware that he was a he was a slightly crap third rate marvel hero but he was <laughs> returning to uh, earth you know, sort of as powerful as anybody and with that recognition of having done something. And you had characters like Iron Man reacting to him going, wait a minute, you're not the Nova that I thought you... And suddenly what the reader and the audiences were thinking about Nova, the comic book character, he was thinking about himself in the book and there was a point of recognition. And, and taking him back to Earth and showing him side by side with that made the difference in terms... And from that point on, it was you know, it sort of, sort of really, really began to take off. So, so yeah, you, 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 I think there's, there's the, you know, you can go out into space or into, into the, the realms of fantasy to do big things and they are, they can be huge and still be separate from earth. But when you go back to earth, it allows you to, to focus on who that person is and, 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 and where their place is now in the, in the firmament. I guess we can take a minute and talk a little bit about the Velma phenomenon. I don't know why I'm so, drawn to this 
subject because I couldn't really care less about most of it. I'm not the world's biggest Scooby-Doo fan. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that I'm not a fan of Scooby-Doo. And yet, I appreciate that there are legions of Scooby-Doo fans out there, and they are up in arms. I mean, you'd think that everyone was up in arms about this. Maybe people are really concerned about preserving the sanctity of the Scooby-Doo animated universe. But like it or not, there's actually a lot of layers to this particular phenomenon. There is the concept that is becoming more prevalent as we go, where writers latch on to a property because there aren't a lot of writing jobs today, and they would much rather be writing for any number of projects to which their backgrounds would be more suited. But because of the lack of jobs and the insistence by studios to latch on to a known property or an IP that has a built-in audience, they really kind of need to take what they can get. And the issue lies wherein they take that property and go, I really am not suited to this property. I have this job. Let's turn this property into something that I would be better at. Now, can we even say that that is exactly what's happening? Yeah, I think we can actually say that's exactly what's happening. But I don't necessarily blame them because I understand that it's a really competitive business. And honestly, you can't just say, well, go work for another show because they don't know when the next show is coming. And if their job is a staff writer on a show and there are no shows then they're going to have to leave the business and find something else. Now, I would imagine that there's a lot of people who are unsympathetic to that job and those workers and say, well, them's the breaks. And really, that's true, but I'd like to think that we're a little less hard-hearted than the average folk. That being said, I understand the Velma show is horrible, but I'll never know. And the reason for that is what I want to get into, and it's because I would never watch a show like Velma. To wit, I have not watched most of, if not proportionately speaking, all of the Scooby-Doo spin-offs that have come and gone in the last 40 years. The most recent Scooby-Doo anything that I watched with any regularity is A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, the 90s spin-off child version of the show. That's literally the only version of Scooby-Doo that I watched with any regularity. When it comes to the movies and the spin-offs and the Scooby-Dums and the shaggy Scrappy-Doos, you can count me out. This new show from HBO Max is no exception. But we were just talking about writers who are taking on jobs that maybe they're not the best suited for and go out of their way to morph the project they're on to fit something that they're better suited towards. It's interesting from an almost anthropological standpoint to look at these cottage industries that have sprung up out of shows like Velma. I'm talking specifically about rage channels on YouTube, and I don't know if there are like rage podcasts. I assume there have to be because the barrier to entry is so low, but, but there is an entire subset that has figured out how to monetize and commodify people's dissatisfaction, let's say, with the current crop of pop culture samplings that have been made available to us. And the funny thing is, I'm no stranger to it. I absolutely added to the chorus of rage and frustration with offerings that purported to be exactly what I asked for and ended up being 
the exact opposite somehow. I cite, of course, the Star Wars prequel trilogy. Regardless of how you feel about those movies, there was a time when the audience at large was split between lovers and haters of those projects. And I can cite hours, countless hours, days stretched together that were dedicated to making fun of and complaining incessantly about how those movies failed to deliver to our expectations. And then in 2009, this little group called Red Letter Media made a comprehensive rage video breaking down in articulate fashion exactly what our frustrations were, at least with respect to The Phantom Menace. And I think a lot of people in the very beginnings of that channel's formation believed that it was a hate channel capitalizing on people's rage about a movie that had been released 10 years prior. And I'll bet that there was a point of divergence for the crew who were making those videos, wherein they could say, well, we did very well complaining out loud about something that people are internally having these misgivings about. We could just completely lean into that and maybe just live and thrive off of people's outrage about one or many different particular subjects in pop culture. But instead, and I remember this very distinctly, they came out with another show, which was just them reviewing movies that had recently been released. They call it Half in the Bag. It's still being made today. And that show, while in its infancy, was met with a resounding or at least vocal rejection from the audience that had shown up to complain about something. Like it or not, it has become the modern equivalent of TV film criticism, like Siskel and Ebert, or Ebert and Roper, or whoever Roper teamed up with after Ebert died. Now, I've done a fair amount of research on this. Not exhaustive, but I've certainly slaked my curiosity on the subject. But I believe that rage as a commodity is unsustainable as a model. In essence, you have to have something else. There must be some product beneath the surface, and rage may be the delivery method through which you present that model, but you have to have something else. Just naked, unabashed rage does die out, and the audience's stomach for it does inevitably turn. And I think this is no more true than in the realm of rage content geared towards popular culture like comic books and TV and movies. I don't think politics counts because I think that there is an inherent dissatisfaction and rage within politics itself, and making a rage-based entertainment network that is blanketed in politics is just par for the course and is, of course, a billion-dollar industry. And the thing about rage-based content geared towards pop culture like TV and movies is you need to have a supply of outrageous TV and movies and comic books to stoke the fires. You need to feed that burning cauldron of rage on a weekly or daily basis to keep the masses upset. Because once the masses stop being upset, they stop watching and they move on and your bottom line is toast. And now we see how this relates to Velma. 
Velma is one of those shows that people who capitalize on crappy content just salivate over because it means that they can milk this cash cow for as long as they need. Long before the show ever comes out, they could start complaining about the show, about the showrunners, about the writers, about the character designs. Then the teaser comes out. That's a month's worth of content right there. And then, finally, the show comes out, and they can really sink their teeth into it, because it's no longer 30 seconds of content. It's no longer a character design you have to pour over. You can just pick apart every single minute of the show. My problem with all of this is... I believe it is inherently corrosive to be addicted to outrage and anger for any prolonged period of time. And in the case of Velma, I apply my very simple philosophy to that show as I do with most things that I know I'm not going to enjoy because I live and breathe, and I'm pretty certain I can discern what I'm going to like and what I'm not going to like. And that is very simply... Don't watch it. But when I say don't watch it, I guess I don't mean don't watch the show. I also mean don't watch the Rage channels, don't watch the breakdowns, don't watch the analyses, don't watch the discussions. Just divorce it from your mind. If Velma, that show, that concept, is so repugnant to you, then immediately you should recognize, oh, This is the kind of thing that's going to raise my blood pressure and freak me out. And so I will just divorce myself from it. Now, in my case, it was easy because I don't normally care about Scooby-Doo. So the idea of a spinoff or a prequel spinoff reimagining was just so beyond the realm of interest. I I wouldn't have even registered it if it wasn't a cultural phenomenon to talk about and be upset by The Velma Show. But even now, I'm never going to see that show, despite how much people are talking about it, despite the ongoing ranting, raving, and outrage associated with it, because it ain't for me. And largely, it would never be for me. It's like whenever I see Paw Patrol, sometimes Paw Patrol will hove into my view, and I'll think, ugh. But then very quickly, I will dissuade myself of that opinion and go, this is a show made for infants. Not only could I not care less about that concept, but it would be actually kind of creepy and weird if I did. I have no children, and I am not the demographic for Paw Patrol. So why would I even share my opinion about that in any public display, much less in my own heart? I really actually internally debated whether I should even bring Velma to the table on this show, but I think there's a teachable lesson here that was important to articulate because I don't think that it is productive or in good faith to argue that if my point is about not watching the show, then I shouldn't be talking about it at all. Because as much as I can practice what I preach and point out things about a particular subject, it does me no good to remain ignorant on the subject if I believe there is some good or value that can be derived from its lessons. So I guess what I'm saying here is, it's not necessarily don't watch Velma or don't watch the discourse surrounding Velma. It's more about knowing yourself and knowing whether you're going to get triggered and being able to recognize if and when you're going to fall down the rabbit hole.
I promise you, if you exercise that muscle, you will be so much better off than most people who navigate pop culture to some obsessive degree. You'll be able to recognize, oh, that's a thing that is not worth my time, not worth my attention, and not worth my heart. So I'll leave you with this one final very random comic book piece of trivia slash lore, and that comes in the form of a almost 30-year-old issue of Incredible Hulk number 418, which takes a character that hasn't been used in a very long time and marries her to Rick Jones, another character that hasn't been used to any significance in a recent amount of history. And yet, they were two very big and important characters in the Hulk mythos at that time, and steward of the character, writer of the book, Peter David, felt that it was so seminal and important that he should cross company barriers and have Neil Gaiman, DC Comics, Vertigo's death appear in the issue. It's unmistakable, and it is clear and directly a reference to the character from Sandman, but there are a couple of things you can notice to distinguish her from her usual standard appearances in Gaiman's works. By the way, she only appears for essentially three panels, but it is enough of an appearance to make it noteworthy and to recognize, yeah, that is absolutely death. And while we have seen pretty overt references to each other's characters in different company events, Specifically, I'm thinking about the time when the Justice League appeared without actually showing the Justice League and without naming them specifically in the Black Winter story arc for Donny Cates' Thor. But this is more overt than most. And the fact is, I don't know if they even needed to get permission back then. If they were to obscure enough of the character to really make the argument, no, I'm not using this character, I'm tongue-in-cheek winking and nodding, it's a parody, whatever, legalese nonsense I need to say. But also, back in 1994, it was kind of the Wild West, so you could get away with that a lot more than you could today. However, apparently, Peter David asked Neil Gaiman for permission to use death in his issue, which Gaiman said, sure. Now, what was Gaiman thinking when he said that? For one thing, Gaiman does not own death. Death is a character that he created, but for Vertigo Comics, which is technically owned by DC Comics, DC has kind of this agreement with Gaiman that they don't use certain characters without his expressed say-so. And it has happened a number of times that Gaiman has given kind of unofficial permission to utilize characters in regular DC Comics where he himself would probably not write that story or use that character in that particular way. In the case of Death appearing in an Incredible Hulk comic for Marvel Comics, written by Peter David, my thinking is he's like, sure, knock yourself out. There's no way they're going to let you. Even though, as I said, I think that they've pretty distinctly gotten around the argument of whether they're technically using it. But once you cross that bridge... It's hard to uncross it. So what I mean by that is sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. If you ask, it means you're showing intent, and now suddenly you're basically indicating to the other party, 
that I need to ask, and by and large that means we need to get some lawyers involved, which typically is where creativity goes to die. But for whatever reason, Peter David goes to Neil Gaiman, he says, hey man, can I use death, even though you don't really have any legal recourse to give me permission? But Gaiman says, sure. Then, Peter David goes to Paul Levitz, who's in charge at DC Comics, or at least is the go-to guy at the time to make that kind of decision. And Levitz signs off, but says specifically, sure, but you can't show the onk that death wears. And I'm assuming that this is some kind of nonsense where Paul Levitz is like, I'm going to give you like a wink and a handshake permission, but if you don't use the onk, then I can argue to the suits if anybody makes a stink that that's not death because she's not wearing the signature onk. I don't know. I wasn't there. I'd love to ask. But my guess is that that's how Levitz worked it out. And Levitz is like, I want to work with David someday. Or maybe I know Peter David personally and I want to help out this guy because he seems to really care about it. He's literally contacted Neil Gaiman to get this permission. All right, let's go for it. Again, the 90s, more of the Wild West. You can get away with this kind of thing back then. Marvel didn't have a real overt parent company like Disney. Back then, they were owned by a toy company. So a little easier to get around that kind of thing. And as you can imagine, it's not like Warner Brothers was getting involved in DC Comics because there weren't a lot of DC properties being adapted into Warner films back then, outside of Batman. And there's always some Superman movie in development, but we all know how that turned out. By the way, the way in which they get around the Ankh not being allowed to appear in this officially sanctioned appearance of death in a Marvel comic is by having the Ankh tucked under Death's tank top. So it's there, but you can't see it. And I guess legally speaking, you could argue, oh, that's not an Ankh, even though it is clearly Death. So I guess that's how they get around it, which is kind of cute and fun. And I love that little story because it shows the camaraderie and the collaboration between these two companies and the fact that at the end of the day, companies are not people. People work for companies, but they also make the company work. They drive the company. The company is this ethereal concept that exists solely to make money and exists to facilitate people's employment. But the people who work for these companies, they're friends, they're colleagues, they're roommates. I think that showcasing that in the text itself is a really nice spirit of collaboration. Oh, there's also a cute tidbit where Death references Thanos directly, and it is just chef's kiss. You're going to love it. Anyway, if you've never seen it, it's usually a buck, and it's Incredible Hulk number 418, which is drawn, by the way, by Gary Frank. So you get a lot of bang for your buck, literally. Anyway, you're probably pulling up to work right now. Uh, sorry I've been so absent lately, at least on this show specifically. Uh, I blew out my voice not too long ago, and I'm not sure why that happened, but it seems to have gotten better, and I really didn't want to risk it. I didn't want to kill any of the momentum that I had been building up after the holidays. And so now that we're back, hopefully I can come up with enough things to talk about and say that will facilitate further episodes of Wake Up With Comic Pop. But I love this show. I love providing some kind of a respite for you to kind of chill out, think about comics, think about something other than work for a minute. Anyway, have a fantastic day at work, or at the very least, hopefully nobody gives you a hard time today.
I'll see you here at Compop Returns. So long.